Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Lady says to Juan Diego, Hear me and understand well, my son the least, that nothing should frighten or grieve you. Let not your heart be disturbed. Do not fear that sickness, nor any other sickness or anguish. Am I not here who is your mother? Am, are you not under my protection? Am I not your health? Are you not happily within my fold? What do you wish? Do not grieve or be disturbed by anything. O God, Father of mercies, who place your people under the protection of your son's most holy mother, grant that all who invoke the Blessed Virgin of Guadalupe may seek with ever more lively faith the progress of peoples in the ways of justice and peace. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Doctor, it's all yours. Let's jump back in. Okay, thank you, Peter. And I'm looking at this beautiful image of Our Lady Guadalupe right in front of me. And it's based upon the vision in Revelation 12. You know, it says, Behold, I saw the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. And immediately following, it speaks of the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon at her feet. And she is the great sign. And Immediately after that, it says that the dragon who, who drew a third of the stars down to earth made war against her. And so it is this woman who gives birth, who is not only a sign to Israel, not only a sign to the nations, but is a, a cosmic sign, a sign even to the angels, and according to one tradition of the fathers, it was precisely uh, the rebellion of the angels against serving Our Lady and Our Lord in the flesh, right? that these angelic creatures would not humble themselves to serve humans. And so it makes me think of what we read in our reading of the angels coming and saying, glory to God on the highest. And they gave the good news, these tidings of great joy, that they should come and look for a sign. It's interesting, Benedict said it was a non-sign, you know, because they said, you will find the child wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. In both cases, right, we have the woman who is about to give birth um, in this cosmic sign uh, in the heavens, and now we have it coming to reality in Bethlehem of the shepherds running to see 
this sign of a little child lying in a manger. And that's it. The whole world, Benedict says, turns upon this. Let's look at page 67 in our reading. I'm going to start at the very bottom of 66. This should cause us to reflect. It points towards the reversal of values found in the figure of Jesus Christ and his message. From the moment of his birth, he belongs outside the realm of what is important and powerful in worldly terms. Yet it is this unimportant and powerless child that proves to be the truly powerful one, the one on whom ultimately everything depends. So one aspect of becoming a Christian is having to leave behind what everyone else thinks and wants, the prevailing standards, in order to enter the light of the truth of our being and aided by that light to find the right path. This is the sign. It was the sign given to angels, and it's the sign given to us. This is it. Everything depends upon this. Everything in the world, in all of history, turns on this sign. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It is all there. It's even unthinkable. It was unthinkable to the angels. They refused to accept it. And it's unthinkable to many of us. When I was working in Catholic schools in the Archdiocese of Denver, we, we redid social studies and we changed it back to history. History means story. And as we're telling history, we, we are aiming at the, the story of humanity. Now, most people would say, well, humanity doesn't have a story. W what did Henry Ford say about history? One damn thing after another. And if you read a lot of history books, well, that's what it is. It's just chock full of names, dates, and places. And we're left saying, why? Who cares? Why does any of this matter? Does it have any meaning? And ultimately, we could look at the story of humanity and just ask those same questions. Why does it matter? Does it have any meaning? Does it have any purpose? If you went up to somebody and said, what's the most important thing that's happened in human history? What do you think they would say? I mean, wouldn't we be so tempted to just think of decisive battles or, or inventions? Oh, the invention of the iPhone. Maybe, maybe that's the most important thing that's ever happened. But I said, even from a secular perspective, is there anything that has changed the history of the world more than the word becoming flesh? I mean, try to think of anything. Does anything even come close? Even if you were to think of the iPhone, right? You know, okay, well, where did that come from? Well, it arose out of modern science, but where did my modern science arise out of? Christian culture. Where did Christian culture come from? The incarnation. And Pope Benedict even says this. He said, the ancients worshipped stars. And they thought that human life followed after the stars and found its meaning and purpose in them. And Benedict says that Jesus reverses that. The star follows him, and all of the cosmos finds its meaning and purpose in him. No one, no thing 
has shaped history nearly as much as the word becoming flesh. That is it. That is the meaning of life there. And during Advent, we can really think about that. What does it mean that the God who simply is, he is the fullness of life, the fullness of existence. He humbled himself and entered into this messy creation of his. You know, when I was a kid, I used to be terrified of death. And, and it wasn't dying. It wasn't dying. It was what's after, you know, because, well, we don't know, right? And, and, and everything will be different. I mean, not, nothing that we know to be true, even time itself. You know, maybe I was slightly philosophical, right? What does it mean to be outside of time and history? We simply can't understand that. It's a mystery. And, and that fear come back to haunt me, you know, throughout my life. You wouldn't have, I would say like this almost like existential paralysis, right? <gasps> you know, just, just being forever, just outside of time, just, I, I can't grasp that. But after my conversion, there was one thing that could always snap me out of that. There wasn't anything that could snap me out of it before. But after my conversion, there was always one thing that could snap me out of that. And that is the fact that I must have a place after death if God himself came and took on my humanity. If Jesus ascended to heaven as the God-man, well, then there must be a place for me. I don't have to understand it. If Jesus is there, then it'll be okay. And it is a new creation. I think Benedict is so right. He pointed us back to the prologue of John's gospel again. And in this case, it was it had to do with um, giving birth in the stable, right? There was no room for him in the inn. And Benedict turns back to the prologue and his own received him not from, from the beginning of John's gospel. But in our reading last week, he turned to the prologue um, to talk about our genealogy. In the beginning was the word. Okay. That's at the very beginning. That's even before the beginning of Genesis, right? Genesis says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John says, well, I can do better than that. In the beginning was the word. Okay. So that's the beginning, beginning. Then the middle and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay. But for what reason? So that all who believed in him, right? Who, who believed in his name might become children of God. That is it, right? It, it, it is a new creation. And we talked, you know, last week, a lot about the expectation of the Jews, right? What did they expect? Jesus didn't fulfill their expectations. He gave them something completely beyond their comprehension. And they, they didn't comprehend it, right? They, they couldn't see what he was doing. This week, if you noticed it, more than the expectations of Israel, there's some of that still, but now it's more the expectations of the nations. Because the kingdom of God exceeds the longings of Israel or of any one nation. And it is something that through faith becomes accessible to all people. 
And where we left off last week, Benedict was talking about even the kind of mythical prophecies of this child. Well, some people thought that the kind of prophecies that Virgil was talking about actually was already fulfilled by somebody who was living at that time, Caesar Augustus. And Benedict contrasts Augustus and Jesus two different times in our, our reading today. But there's a third king as well, and that is King Herod. You know, I, I thought to myself a couple of times reading this, um, that the emperor said, I would rather be <laughs> I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. <laughs> and why? Because even though Herod wasn't a Jew, he claimed to be a Jew, right? And therefore didn't eat pork. So it would be safer to be Herod's pig than his son. Uh, because Herod was somebody who thought that he could create and maintain a kingdom out of terror. Right? It's kind of the, the worst character of a king, a, a tyrant who would brook no rivals. Caesar also would brook no rivals, uh, but Caesar claimed to be the Prince of Peace. In his person, he claimed to be bringing about a new golden age, right? And this is why I was saying that he claimed to fulfill a lot of these mythological expectations. There would be a new era of peace. Herod thought only of himself, but Augustus thought of the whole empire that I can be a father to this empire. I can bring unparalleled prosperity and peace to this empire. And Benedict says, well, what should we make of that? Should we just dismiss it? But on the other hand, Jesus was born in the fullness of time. And he was born in the reign of Caesar Augustus, this man who claimed to be the son of God. You know, it was interesting that, you know, Caesar Augustus had his adoptive father, his uncle, Julius Caesar, proclaimed God by the Roman Senate. And he says, okay, well, you know what that means then? It means that I am the son of God. And so Caesar Augustus literally claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be this prince of peace. He claimed to bring this unrivaled prosperity throughout the world. And Jesus comes, and you can think back to that passage that I read from Benedict, he comes as a sign of contradiction. Herod thinks he can establish peace for himself through violence, but he can't. He will die and have to give an account. Caesar Augustus thinks that he can create this universal prosperity and peace. And he did a good job of that that there is an unparalleled kind of moment in which Jesus was born. We can put that alongside of the expectation of the Jews. The Jews, in a way, wanted that, but for themselves, right? And if there was going to be a universal peace, it, it, was, it would be through Israel. But Jesus rather said, you're all wrong, because the kingdom of God is at hand through an interior revolution, this, this turning of everything upside down that Benedict was talking about, this, this changing, this transforming of values. The word became flesh, or we could think of Philippians 2. Jesus did not claim equality with God 
He did not deem it something to be grasped after. And that's taken to be a reference to Adam and Eve. Rather, he emptied himself and took the form of a slave. And therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that exceeds every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, up in heaven, on earth, and even under the earth. And every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, now, that's actually revolutionary. Why did Jesus die? Why, why did Pontius Pilate kill him? Because he claimed to be Lord. To proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord was a revolutionary statement to the Romans. Jesus Christ is Lord. Caesar is Lord. You can have your own gods, right? If you're willing to accept the divinity of Caesar within the pantheon of the gods, then you can have your own God in addition. But if you are to say that this man, Jesus Christ, that he is the king of kings, that he is the true prince of peace, and that he is Lord, then you will die. And not only did Jesus die for that claim, but so did his followers. And you can see this throughout Acts of the Apostles, that the Jews were always stirring, stirring up that accusation. These men are revolutionaries because they proclaim a new Lord, not Caesar. And it, Within Acts of the Apostles, you know, the Roman procurators are not very concerned about that, actually. They're like, yeah, 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 you, you deal with this inter-Jewish dispute yourselves. But eventually, the Romans become very concerned about this. And they do kill many Christians over this particular claim. Now, Benedict hits this theme from another angle as well. And this is something that he comes back to very often. And there is a, a new book that came out from Ignatius Press, Benedict's last writings, What is Christianity? Um, and he hits up on this theme that he hits throughout his corpus, and that is the truth of the Christian faith in relation to other religions. And I think I'm very attuned to that because my doctoral dissertation was on the virtue of religion in St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas Aquinas views religion as a virtue of justice owed towards God. And any human being who realizes that God is the creator and the redeemer, out of justice then would realize that there should be some return. There should be some sign of submission, of thanks and praise to that being. That's part of the natural law. Benedict points us to that in terms of the wise men. He said in a way that the wise men represent maybe over and against Caesar and Herod, who were claiming to create these perfect kingdoms. I mean, Herod was claiming to be the Jewish Messiah, by the way, right? Because if you claim to be the anointed king of Israel, you were saying you were the Messiah, right? So Herod is a false Messiah, and Caesar Augustus is an imperfect prince of peace. He brought peace, but could he really bring the peace that people needed? No, maybe the peace that they wanted, but not the peace that they ultimately needed. The wise men 
are the ones who are attuned to what is happening. They follow the signs, right? So the shepherds have the sign revealed to them. The wise men do not at first, right? The wise men are simply watching, they're waiting. And Benedict says that the religion of the nations often became corrupt. It means it often fell into idolatry. The Old Testament says that that was demonic. Why was it demonic? It's not because the gods of the nations were not real. I think we're often tempted to think that. It's because they were real. They're demons. So the demons fall from heaven because they will not bow down to the lady and her child. And they set themselves up as the ones to be worshipped. They offer favors, even hidden knowledge to their followers. But the wise men see past that. So the wise men see past the false signs, and they recognize the real signs. So they reject the false signs, and they're able to follow the star to Jerusalem. Now, a lot of times people say the star was some overwhelming, miraculous revelation, almost like the angels to the shepherds. But notice, no one in Jerusalem saw the sign. When the wise men came, they were like, what? I mean, Herod was caught off guard. So it was a particular sign that only they understood. And then they needed revelation to send them to Bethlehem. So there's a meeting of the signs of the heavens with God's revelation. And Benedict sees this as the fulfillment of our natural longings for God, of this natural impetus within us to know the truth of things and to be in relation to God, which too often was distorted, but comes to fulfillment in the wise men. Now, the Bible says that when they turned to Jerusalem, the star followed. We might think, well, some like mythological or something, or some miraculous occurrence. But if the star were a conjunction of planets, what stars are the only ones that reverse course and go backwards? It's planets, called retrograde motion. And so it is possible that, as Benedict says, the wise men saw a conjunction of planets, possibly with stars, with a certain, you know, um, conjunction of stars and planets altogether, and that when they're in Jerusalem, one of the planets, let's say Jupiter in particular, has a retrograde motion that points them to the south towards Bethlehem, which they took as a confirmation of the revelation, right? So it's a very beautiful, I think, possibility of what we see of nature and revelation coming together. One of Benedict's key themes, faith and reason, leading them to the Messiah. Now, I just want to point out one more thing before we get to some questions. Here we are in Advent, and the birth of the Savior is the most important event in human history. What's the most wonderful time of the year? It's interesting that even though Jesus may be crowded out of the Christmas season, it makes me think of Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph are there trying to find a place to go. There's no room in the inn. But yet everybody's gathered together for a particular reason. Everybody's singing special songs. Everybody's giving presents and traveling. 
connecting with family. Why? Why? Because the birth of the Savior is still the most important time of the year for us. Maybe despite ourselves, we're still somehow following that star. Maybe we're not following it all the way, but the sign is still there. You can still see it often. The same sign that was given to the shepherds is still visible even in our secular culture. But we have to attune our eyes to be able to see it. And this brings us back to Benedict's discussion of grace, right? So if, if religion is a natural inclination towards God, which needs to be completed by revelation, like it did for the wise men, then this revelation ultimately brings us to this new birth in grace. And so in the announcement to the shepherds, peace on earth to men of goodwill, peace to people of goodwill, as we say. Benedict spends actually a lot of time talking about this, and he wants to correct the translation a bit. He says, it's not that we are of goodwill, he says it is people in whom God is pleased. What can we do to please God? But what did Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. I love that line from the Last Supper discourse in John's gospel. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, in the first volume of Jesus of Nazareth, we already saw God the Father saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So going back to, to the prologue of John's gospel, we become beloved children of God in this rebirth um, that we are given by the incarnation. This is the true turning point of human history, but it's the turning point of our lives. Just like the wise men were on a quest. And I think Benedict is pointing us to a similar quest that we must undertake. And he says, I think this is somewhat beautiful, and I'll, I'll end here, that the, the words of the gospel ultimately are very mysterious. He says this about Jesus' own knowledge and, and his upbringing. They exceed our comprehension, and therefore we must always have a humility before them. But like Mary, we can continue to ponder them in our hearts. Throughout the rest of Advent, we can continue to ponder these joyful mysteries, to enter into them in faith. But if we are reborn in Christ, if we are the people in whom God is pleased, what does that ultimately mean for us? And at the presentation, we see that it means suffering with Christ, that a sword of sorrow pierces Mary's heart because she is the one, as we saw in the Annunciation, who gives herself entirely to Jesus Christ. She becomes one with him. And that's what we're called to do in communion. That's what communion means to become one with, right? We are meant to become one with Christ. And so his birth will be a sign of our rebirth. But Jesus was born to die. Christmas is ultimately about charity. Jesus came to give of himself as a gift. The gifts of Christmas are a sign of the gift that he made of himself. But that's what we are going to be called to do if we follow him. Okay, so I think that that is a good enough overview. I will just point out 
you know, that I, I added on the, the end of our study guide, just another little passage from Ratzinger's writings that, that filled in uh, a little lacuna that we were missing in his own reflections. So um, I think from there, um, we can open it up um, for, I would say, comments maybe particularly on this, I would really say the meeting of these different cultures in search of God, right? So we had the Romans, the Jews, and the wise men. And so we have political power, a false Messiah, and, but then we have this religious search. Did that resonate with anyone in particular about Christmas ultimately being the search for true peace, for meaning, right? And the different ways in which we see this coming out. You have the humble shepherds, you have kings, you have these mysterious wise men, and we can talk more about who the wise men may be. I indicated a recent theory, which I think makes a lot of sense, but I don't know. If anybody wants to jump in here, please do. Uh, Dr. Stout, uh, you, you were mentioning about the, the wise men and uh, uh, following the, the the signs, the stars, and the planets. And I was wondering if you, uh, there was a documentary that came out in 2007, roughly around there, called The Star of Bethlehem. And first time I ever saw it, I had no clue. I, I always figured it was just one big shining star as we put on our Christmas trees every year. But the way uh, um, uh, it was a lawyer type guy who explained it and researched it and used all this astronomy. And it's like, it, it kind of blew my mind away about, because I always wonder how can nobody have seen this big shining star in the sky and only these guys from way, way far away. Mm -hmm. But what did they really see? And apparently the movement of the stars and the planets was what they were studying. And they knew that that signaled the coming of the Lord. And if anybody else hasn't seen it, I recommend it. It's called the Star of Bethlehem. Yeah, and there are, there are other theories too. And I think what's neat about that documentary is that he actually recreates the night sky. And, you know, and so he actually traces the retrograde movement of Jupiter. I think it was like in... 1 BC. Benedict seems to favor 6 BC, but I think it's at um, on National Catholic Register right now. They actually have an article by a scholar in Italy who makes a compelling claim for 1 BC. And I think the documentary also says 1 BC, but he says that the time in which the star would have, the, the planet Jupiter would have had that retrograde movement from being over Jerusalem to over Bethlehem would have been December 25th. And that wouldn't have been the birth of Jesus, but it would have been a key moment. We can also be pretty confident that Jesus was born in that time of year. Because of the revelation, we know when Zechariah was in the temple, because it says when his month of duty was. Because the, the well, what it says is that he was of this, a certain division of priests. And we know when that division of priests um, would have been in service what time of year. And it was like in the fall. And that would have made the birth of John the Baptist around when we celebrate it in the summer. And six months later, Jesus' birthday would be around the time we celebrate it now. So there, so there are a lot of neat things, I think, in looking at this conjunction of planets, which would make a star brighter than any other star that could be seen in the sky by far. 
Um, and then we can even just by reading scripture, we can know that Jesus actually was born around this time of year as well. Yeah, Dr. My, uh, Kathleen writes in the chat that Dr. Michael Barber talks about the possibility of the star potentially being an angel. I think I actually recall him saying that he gave a talk for us last year. You can find it in our library. Uh, it's called Star of Wonder. And it was about the Magi. It's great uh, to continue on tonight's discussion. But uh, what are your thoughts on that theory potentially? It's a possibility. But then I think what we would say is it would almost be like a revelation to those particular individuals. And what's interesting is that the Magi, we know a lot about Magi in the ancient world. And the term does originate in Persia, but there were Magi throughout the Middle East. So they do, the wise men do not need to be Persian because there are two Magi in Acts of the Apostles, neither one in Persia, right? You know, you have Simon Magus, and then you have the other Magus that Paul confronted in his ministry that Benedict references in the book. So, um, but the Magi did, they were scholars and they did study the stars. And so I would say the only thing maybe working against that theory, I, I wouldn't say that it's, you know, you couldn't believe it. It's a possibility to believe that, or I mean, to hold that, but it wouldn't fit as much with the fact that it was only seen by wise men who are dedicated to studying the stars. That's why I think some kind of conjunction of planets would fit into that narrative more. And if it was an angel, then I, I also think that they wouldn't have needed to come to Jerusalem and, and to hear the prophecy because the angel would have just taken them there directly. But I mean, could the angel have led them to Jerusalem first for, for his purposes? Yes, of course. But, but I'm saying it just doesn't fit together as, as neatly. Also the, the prophecy of Balaam um, from the book of numbers um, that, you know, there would be this star arise that pointed to the King. Um, I put in the, the study guide that, Father Dwight Longenecker, who lives in, in my area here in the Carolinas, that he um, said that they were Nabataeans. Now, if you're familiar with the city of Petra, the Petra was the main city of the Nabataeans. And I think he gives compelling reasons um, for that, even the fact that they were the ones who traded in frankincense and myrrh, um, which is a nice little tidbit. But it's also the area where Balaam was from. So why would Persians know anything about a prophecy? Um, related to a star pointing to a Jewish king, but there actually was a pagan who prophesied that. Um, and he was, happened to be from the area around Moab where, where the Nabataeans lived. Could you talk a little bit about the significance of those gifts? I mean, you just mentioned frankincense and myrrh, but Pope Benedict also you know, talked about the three gifts as well. Yeah, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So gold was considered to be a kingly gift, in part because kings were the ones who minted currency. Um, and so you would see like, for instance, the Romans had a golden coin. And so they would be the ones who would be able to issue that. And so um, gold belonged to the king. Um, incense um, signified um, the, the priesthood and sacrifice of Christ. Benedict says it points to Jesus' divinity because Incense is used in sacrifice. And you even see that in Old Testament sacrifice, that incense was burned uh, within the temple, but also in relation to sacrifices. Uh, and then myrrh, which of course was used in Jesus's burial, right? And so it's a, it's a sign then of his passion. 
what did Mary do with the gold? Well, live in Egypt, I would presume. <laughs> because they left quickly, right, out of Bethlehem. And that would have given them means uh, to live while they were in Egypt. We know that they were poor. We know that for a fact. How do we know that, Benedict says, from the text in Luke's gospel? That when it was time for Mary's purification, that she offered the sacrifice um, of the poor. So uh, someone who had more money would offer a lamb, where she offered the two birds, which was the sacrifice of the poor. So they, the Holy Family needed the money. Another note on the presentation, uh, Jesus was Mary's firstborn son. And sometimes you hear Protestants saying, oh, well, look, he was her firstborn son, so therefore she had other sons. That's a theological term. And anybody who would say that doesn't know the Old Testament. Because when the first child born is a son, then they have that title. If, if you had a daughter and then a son, then the family would not have a firstborn son. It's only, and actually, even if there's a miscarriage or stillbirth or anything like that, that would also um, negate the, the son born later being the firstborn son. So it's a son who opens the womb is what the Bible says. And this is interesting because we even see in our reading um, that Israel is called God's firstborn son. You are my firstborn son. And when Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says, God is calling Israel his son to be free. Right. So, I mean, that's not the exact word that he uses, but he says, uh, let my son Israel be free right, to Pharaoh. And then the final plague, the 10th plague, is the one that strikes down the firstborn of the Egyptians. And the whole Passover is the Passover of the firstborn son, so that the sons of the Israelites would not be struck down by celebrating the Passover. They're spared from the angel of death. And because of that, the firstborn son would need to be redeemed with five shekels. And so Jesus was redeemed as the firstborn son, but he then is the one who makes the perfect Passover, saving us all from death by being the firstborn son who is actually offered to death. So he's redeemed at the beginning. But Benedict says, you know, the presentation in the temple is not something that pertained to Jewish law. The redemption of the firstborn and the purification of Mary both pertain to the Jewish law. The presentation in the temple, though, was a sign of Jesus' complete offering of himself to the Father that signified his entire life. Um, now, according to Catholic doctrine, Mary's womb was not opened. So the firstborn son is the son who opens the womb. But the term virgin birth doesn't just mean the virgin conception. Otherwise, we would just say virgin conception. But the church has always meant the virgin birth to mean that Mary remained a virgin while giving birth. And even that has been definitively defined by the church, even by the Second Vatican Council, as recently as then. Um, Mary's perpetual virginity includes the fact that she did not give birth by normal means, according to Catholic tradition. Uh, Robert wrote in the chat over here asking why it's necessary that everything in Jesus' life be connected to these Old Testament references. 
and, and he mentions specifically the Nazareth, the, the mention of Nazareth, and where it may have been referenced in the Old Testament. And hmm. talks about the whole "He will be a Nazarene" prophecy that you can't find, right? Yeah. So, what, what what is going on here? You know, this is one of the major points that Benedict is trying to make in these volumes. Because when he's telling us that we need to attend to the historical elements, in part, that means to really understand the unfolding of salvation history over thousands of years and the way in which, and we found out now that he drafted Dei Verbum, the the document on divine revelation from Vatican II. But Dei Verbum says that God revealed himself not only by words, but also by deeds. And so, The revelation of the Old Testament um, was God's revelation of himself to humanity, not just to the people of Israel, but to all of humanity. And so Jesus came in the incarnation as the culmination of that revelation, that he was its fulfillment. And you could say, did God have to do that? God doesn't have to do anything. (laughs) God chose to do that. So we broke communion with him in the garden. God is communion, right? He's a communion of persons, and everything he does is to bring about communion. And so how did God reestablish communion with himself? It was through a family, Abraham's family. And the genealogies even point us to this fact and the circumcision that Jesus is circumcised to be a son of Abraham. The circumcision itself is significant. I think we're kind of embarrassed by it because we don't even like mention it on the octave day of Christmas, that January 1st is the feast of the circumcision. We say, well, now we call it feast of Mary, the mother of God. But I mean, obviously they're, they're very much related. Mary's motherhood, right? And being the mother of the Messiah, but he sheds his blood for us already at the circumcision. And so God establishes a family and Israel is his firstborn son as I was saying. And so when the true firstborn son from all eternity comes into the world, he himself embodies Israel in himself and fulfills all of the history in a way that takes the work of communion that God did in establishing this family to all of the nations. And so the wise men, which I mentioned earlier, are part of the fulfillment of the promise of this family reaching the nations through faith, like Abraham's faith. But then also in the presentation, um, Simeon says, a light to reveal you to the nations and the glory of your people, Israel. You are the one, Jesus, you are the Messiah who will not only be the glory of Israel, but you will be the one who is the light to all the nations that God always intended the story of Israel to become the story of all humanity. That's such a fascinating point. Just thinking about the meaning of history and the reading of these gospel texts, something that Pope Benedict has me thinking about a lot is just the, the process by which one writes history and, and Pope Benedict trying to get us to really appreciate the historicity of the gospels. And it can, you know, the, I think what's going on in a question like this is like, come on, can it really be that every line, every word has so much significance? Like all of these that are, that are uh, you know, a prophecy fulfilled here and a prophecy fulfilled there. And, and I think 
the the humility of a good historian is in recognizing that we have so little to work with. And of course, what we have in the Gospels is the fruit of decades of reflection by men who are close to Jesus and who had the meaning of all of these details expound or opened up to them later. And they're not going to waste our time with the, the thousand other details that that weren't significant, right? These are this is the goods. Uh, James, go ahead. Um, so, so Pope Benedict indicates that the incarnation was the most significant of of all God's actions that opened actually opened heaven. In today's responsorial psalm, Psalm eighty five, we're talking about heaven opening up. We're talking about earth rising up, love and mercy meeting, touching, righteousness and truthfulness, kissing. You know, the angels and the shepherds coming together, the wise men and the shepherds coming together, the uniting of the rich and the poor in the humbleness of circumstances. And then his Pope Benedict's discussion on the peace that the Pax Roman, Romani, uh, the, the peace that Augustine was supposed to bring or tried to bring, and seemingly for 250 years did bring to the degree that Christianity spread. And the Roman Empire died and Christianity grew, all from love and truth coming together, the, the, the rich and the poor coming together for the first time in history, it would seem to me. I'm just wondering if, if Psalm 95 is not a significant psalm in this, and I was just kind of... Un- wondering why it wasn't included in Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) There's so much that could be included. Benedict tries to be attentive to the Psalms, and they are considered often to be a portrait of Jesus himself. Um, So I I like where you're going with that, especially in relation to Isaiah's prophecy of the lion laying down with the lamb, because I think what you're helping us to see is that that may be something deeper, right? So it's kind of like an allegorical language to say that the, you know, the lion will lay down with the lamb or the wolf. Right. And to, to say that what you're, you're going to see a reconciliation of peoples. Um, You're going to see interior transformation. And I think often when we see like the dramatic conversion of the saints, um, for instance, the, the war like St. Ignatius, you know, going back to to elementary school and learning Latin with the little kids, and you know, you know, you see things like this, or the 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 even the martyrs um, of the early church and the way in which their witness brought about conversion through this sign of contradiction. So Jesus's cross will be a sign of contradiction that leads to the rise and fall of many, and the Roman Empire will become Christian. It survives in some form until 1453. In some ways, it survives, we could say, even in the church itself. And there's a a beautiful line in here that's somewhat mysterious when Benedict says that 
the Roman Empire and the church are are bound up in many ways. Um, and so I think I mentioned this last week, right? That Jesus did conquer the Romans, but he did it more in the way that you're saying, right? Through submitting to his own death, through his followers imitating him and seeming to, to lose, to lose, to lose. That is how they reconciled the empire. And then you look at the barbarians coming in and destroying the empire in the West. And then they too come under the peaceful yoke of Christ. I mean, that it's also is miraculous. Uh, Mara, go ahead. Uh, on page 105, that brought me to back to something that we talked before about the humility in, in your knowledge, because he asked the question, how Herod reacts to what the chief priests and scribes and the question is, does this perhaps furnish us with the image of a theology that exhausts itself in academic disputes? And I was meditating how careful we have to be, no matter how wise we think we are, and the humility that we need to have to react to all the things that God is revealing us. And then that brought me to, what is it, uh, Matthew, when Jesus said, I thank you, Lord, for you have hidden these things from the wise. So it's not about how much knowledge you have or how smart you, you are. It's all a gift and you have to be humble and keep that humility to keep, you know, gathering those graces from the Lord. That's That was my meditation on that. Reading. Well, I would say that Joseph Ratzinger himself is a great example of that, isn't he? That like the wise men, he was very intelligent. You know, they were wise men. Doesn't say that they were kings, right? That they were wise men. They were magi, actually. The, the term is magi in, in the Greek, not wise men. They were magi. That means they were a learned class, right? They were scholars. And we know, I mean, this has to be the case, that setting out on this journey required a lot of faith. It was a kind of a crazy thing to do. And what did the people in Jerusalem think about them? Well, I think the fact that nobody followed them gives us the answer. They too thought they were crazy people. <laughs> and you know, Pope Benedict was very much maligned throughout his life. Why? Because he was surrounded by sterile academics. The ones who ask questions and seek knowledge for its own sake, or, or do they? I mean, are they actually seeking knowledge? What are they seeking? You know, Hans Kung was his colleague for a while. Hans Kung seemed to be seeking publicity, right? That's what he was seeking through his academic career. I, I mean, what, what, what are the scholars seeking? Are they seeking the face of Jesus Christ? And, and I don't just mean this to be cute, but I think Benedict was really seeking the face of Jesus Christ. That's why he, you know, he ended his career with this work. Everything was leading up to this. It's like he was following the star. And of course, the wise men are alleged to, to be buried in the Cologne Cathedral. So they weren't, they, they weren't too far from him growing up. Maybe he was a, they were a kind of model for him. And so Benedict is an example of, of a man who was very intelligent and very wise, who was willing to be humble. And unlike all the smearing in the press, he was an extremely 
humble, gentle, and loving man. Some people say too much so, uh, even as Pope, right? right? He wasn't willing to put his foot down maybe enough as Pope. And so, yeah, what? But I think it's a question for all of us, especially in this Christmas season. What are we really seeking? I mean, Jesus is coming to fulfill all genuine expectations. And many of us don't know where to find that fulfillment. And many of us who have been blessed to be Christian don't know where to find that fulfillment. And that's why we celebrate this feast every single year, because we haven't celebrated it enough yet. (laughs) God has blessed us, we hope, with another Christmas, another opportunity to find what the wise men found, what the shepherds found, and to come. It's just, he was reflecting on the word like proskenuye, right? That they that they prostrated themselves, they worshiped, they, they prostrated themselves. And it's, it is a term used for kind of like a genuflection and or prostration and worship. The wise men worshiped this king. I think we'd say they found what they were looking for. The answer is right there. Dr. Ashan wrote in uh, saying that she loves the way that Pope Benedict unites faith and reason here uh, in giving us many scriptural indicators throughout the Old and New Testament and sources that point to the reality of the mystery of the incarnation, but while also showing that they're not proofs, that for God will never give us an irrefutable logical syllogism to enslave us in, <laughs> to perfect servitude uh, out of respect for our free will. He's very careful not to cross the line, but also uh, he's pushing back against modern day exegists or exegetes that uh, demystify truths and and tell us we can only know things through empirical empirical evidence. And so the the sign of faith is essential. And, you know, it, it makes me think of that section on grace and free will once again. Um, people with whom God is is pleased. And yet, he says that God requires us to respond to the grace. And that's what he said about the Annunciation, that Mary had to respond in faith. So how do we balance that, the faith and the reason, that I would say that getting deeper into historical studies have genuinely enabled me to understand, let's say, what Jesus means when he's teaching us. It's not just like icing on the cake. You know, there's some interesting facts you could learn about shepherds in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. It'd be like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, great, great, great. But, But to actually understand the history of Israel, to understand the expectations of the Messiah, particularly at the time of Jesus. And then you start to understand, well, this is why Jesus did this. This is why Jesus said this. It helps us to, to deepen our faith. But I don't think that archaeological discoveries would ever lead us to the point where we could simply say, oh, well, that's it. We don't need faith any longer. I mean, God doesn't want us to get to that point. Now, maybe with some exceptions, there was a friend of mine who who walked into the office one day and said, I no longer believe that God exists because I know that God exists. Now, in that case, that's something that you can both know and believe at the same time, right? You don't have to believe that God exists. You can know that God exists through reason. 
But obviously, that's not sufficient for your salvation, simply to know that God exists, right? God wants you to know him, and that will always require a leap of faith. That will always require us to cooperate with his grace. Uh, Cheryl, go ahead. I just right now felt like I got a a greater revelation, respect for the wise men. As you mentioned, they were uh, a learned class. And so one would imagine they were also more wealthy, maybe, and comfortable. Now, these men have been searching the heavens. They see the star. They set out on a journey with extremely expensive gifts to give honor to a king. And so they come to Jerusalem and the king says, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and so then the wise, the, the, his, his people say, oh, Bethlehem of Judea is where the Messiah will be born. They leave and they go to Bethlehem and they go into a cave to find a poor nondescript family. And it doesn't show any indication that they stop outside and say, well, do you think this is the right place? Or are we, should we be looking somewhere else? I don't get this. They go in and offer homage to the baby that they find. I, I thought, I just thought to myself, how easy would it be for me to do that? And I don't think it would be very easy at all because I would have enough doubt, pride and a bunch of other stuff that I would have a hard time just going with what God had placed in my path. So anyway, I I'm very well put. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine that? You show up and there's animals everywhere. Yeah. And you're like, this is the king. Like you said, they obviously they were wealthy bringing, bringing those gifts and no one else was willing to follow them. Yes. Sometimes people just ask the question, where was God when this happened and what, you know, whatever. And it's like, were you even looking? He was there, right? Well, where are you looking? And so, yeah, they 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 must have had a very deep faith to follow the star all the way to the completion and to accept the answer because so many of us are not willing to accept it or to accept it fully. So big part of my prayer life starting tonight is I'm going to have to bring that to God and say, okay, please help me with that because... I'm, I'm just amazed and awed by their... their Allow him to lead you like he led them, yeah. right? Yes. Dr. Stapp, I also like the fact that Pope Benedict said that they must have been pupils of Aristotle. I love that. <laughs> of course he would say that. Yeah, right. Yeah, Rick, I, I see your comment there in the in the chat box about, you know, Luke seems to indicate that they went home immediately after the presentation. Of course... He doesn't, he may imply that, but he doesn't necessarily say that. And with no time in between, they, they went back to Nazareth. But, but I think um, that I've noticed that throughout the infancy narratives that, you know, he mentions mystery a number of times. And I read you even the passage at the very end that he does seem to be okay with just sitting with the mystery of things and telling us that these are written from different viewpoints they agree on certain respects. There, there are like the genealogies, there are discrepancies. Um, so I think he just seems to be okay with that. 
Doctor, it seems like another big question in the chat is the the idea of Herod targeting any of the boys under two. So would the Magi have visited in the cave or could it have been later after the birth itself? Yeah, I, I think it actually in the text, I believe it says, doesn't it talk about the house at that point? So yes, it's true that at that point they they would have been um, living in a home in Bethlehem. So it seems like they um, settled down there. And you know, even in that documentary, The Star of Bethlehem, I think it does talk about there being, you know, probably about a year um, in between in between the time when the star maybe first appeared, there was some indication anyway, but that's just one guy's theory. But nonetheless, there were some interesting things about maybe an initial sign to the wise men that is then confirmed after they come to Jerusalem. So there's definitely some time in there. The two years, I think we would have to, you know, be somewhat cautious of saying exactly two years. It wasn't certainly at the, probably at the moment of his birth. How long did he wait for the wise men to come back, Right. And was he also then kind of hedging his bets and saying, let's even go farther? You know, like, let's say the wise men thought the baby was a year. Kill all the babies two and under. You know what I mean? Like, that's certainly a possibility. But I think what is clear from the text is that it's like the wise men were not there at the moment of birth. There was time that followed from the birth to their arrival. And by the time Herod kind of realizes what happens, he's at least... I mean, he's at least saying that the child would be no older than that, but it doesn't mean that he didn't think that the child was younger than that. It is possible. So we don't know exactly. And in our imagining the spaces, you know, the cave, the stable, the house, these things, I think it's easy, especially after our tradition of European art, you know, depicting as German and French and Italian stables would have looked we get this image, you know, of of one of what you know your typical crash manger, a barn, et cetera. But but the caves in that area, the, the hills are like Swiss cheese, and everybody built their houses on caves. And it could have been right. that the stable was the cave in you know next to the house in the back of the house. It could have been the same house. It's it's that's what it's like out there. Yeah, you and you're right about. And this is true even in medieval Europe, that often there would be one large structure, half would be the house, half would be the barn. And so it is possible that that they were staying with family and were simply in that part of the house because the main part of the house was too full. And that could be a house that was built freestanding, but it, it, it could also be a house that was built in conjunction with a cave as well. That's within the realm of the possible, for sure. Um, all right, cool. Let me start with this one from Maria. She had written in a little while ago asking if Mary knew at the Annunciation that Jesus was the Son of God. Um, she would have known that he was the Messiah, she writes, in the Old Testament prophecy, speak of a Messiah, but would, he have, would she have known that he would have been God incarnate? It says that he shall be called Son of the Most High, I believe. Is that the language? Um, and so it's implied, I mean, yes, it's revealed to her. And the question is how much she would have understood that all immediately. I mean, because we see Mary pondering things in her heart 
And I'm sure that was a mystery that she had to continue to understand more and more deeply throughout time. Janet wrote in asking if, or asking why the shepherds and Anna and Simeon and even the Magi are not presented as then proclaiming the good news. So here they all believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, so why are they not going out and proclaiming this uh, for, for people to hear? Yeah, it's interesting. And of course, it is possible that they did. We don't know. Um, but if we connect it to, let's say, like Mark's gospel, Mark um, has something that's called the messianic secret, right? Jesus performs miracles, and he always tells people not to talk about them. Um, and so it is possible that the Holy Family or even God's own inspiration would have directed people to keep this mystery within their own heart. We don't know. If the wise men simply journeyed back to their own country, I mean, they, they could have talked very freely about it. And the shepherds certainly said, do you know what we saw? I mean, you can just imagine the shepherds doing that. We saw, you know, these angels and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? You know what shepherds say late at night out there. And you can kind of imagine people reacting that way. And Anna and Simeon, you know, they were older, very, you know, very mature. And I could imagine them sharing this great secret, this great fulfillment of prophecy with certain people, maybe that the Lord directed. It's like Mary, and people said, why didn't she just tell Joseph what was going on? What does she do? She goes after the Annunciation to Elizabeth. Elizabeth is moved by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the reality um, of the Incarnation. Joseph may have even been present to that. That might have been part of his thinking, by the way. You know, we can go back to that topic last week. And what does Mary say? She sings this song, and it's for her own family, of course. But it's very heavily focused on God fulfilling all of his promises to Israel. And what she says is actually similar to what Simeon says about the rise and fall of many, right? And so there's something here, right? You know, it, it's, not, it's not the time of going out and saying salvation has come because Jesus has died and risen from the dead and all must believe in him. But what we see, what we see happening is that people are coming, and it is true that people are are experiencing this very much in an intimate fashion, kind of one-on-one, small groups. And they're being told that the, the fulfillment of the prophecies is at hand. This is what's happening. And it's not fully unfolded yet, right? So the, the time isn't ripe for proclamation. But I don't know if that means that they didn't talk about it at all. But maybe they did imitate Mary in, in pondering this over in their heart and speaking about it judiciously, because the good news, like I said, is not fully ready uh, to be shared. Cecilia wrote in asking, because we, being an Advent, we, we didn't uh, touch upon the last episode, the, the uh, finding of our Lord in the temple. Um, but she asked if you could talk about that a little bit. She says it's the joyful mystery, which is always confused her the most. Um, could you comment on what it teaches us besides the uh, the symbolism that Pope Benedict related of it prefiguring his three days in the tomb? Um, why would a son who is perfectly obedient and respectable of his parents disappear like that without forewarning them? You know, it may have been a trial of faith for them as well. 
And so it's clearly, as Benedict indicates, it's a foreshadowing of his coming passion and death because he's lost to Mary for three days. So it's even the partly the beginning of the fulfillment of this sort of sorrow piercing her heart because, and she says, I sought for you with sorrow, right? So we see Our Lady of Sorrows already experiencing this distance, but I think there's more to it than that. It is, if, if you will, Jesus's bar mitzvah. It's his rite of passage. And Jesus, I mean, probably lived a pretty normal childhood. And, and we can say that from the basis of the Bible, not just like speculation. I, I think that Jesus, why? Because when Jesus in John's gospel says, I'm not going down to the feast in Jerusalem, one of his brothers, you know, his cousin, his close family member says, are you out of your mind? He literally says that to him. And so when his own family is reacting that way, that means we thought we knew you. We thought you were the carpenter's son that we saw grow up all these years. And now you're acting weird. And then they might say, well, is there any other time he acted weird? There was that time when he was in the temple as a kid, right? And so what do we see here? This is, in a way, what is a rite of passage? It's indicating that a child is being separated from his mother and is being accepted into the community of adults. And so what is he doing, right? Well, he's separated from his mother, which is a sign of his ultimate mission of, you know, abandoning his life he's being accepted into the community of the the priests and scholars in the temple and then it's an ultimate sign of who he is did you not know that your father and i were looking for you with sorrow and he says did you not know i must be in the things as benedict points out in the things of my father in a way, after being a normal kid, it is bringing these things back up, even for Our Lady, to continue to ponder. Oh, what did Simeon say? What did the angel say to me in Nazareth? Oh, there is a mission here which must be fulfilled. My son will be taken from me. I will lose him. Oh, that's right. He has, you know, we can say, well, duh, right? I mean, but no, but the Holy Family is living a normal life. And it's like, oh, no, but he belongs ultimately to the Father. That is a lesson for Mary and Joseph. It's a sign. It's a prophetic sign. But beyond that, I think we can say that this is his is a moment of rite of passage for him in which he's no longer the boy. He's moving into the stage of adolescence, which will then take him up to the beginning of his mission when he reaches the age of being able to teach. Related to that and, and to our discussion last week of, of the prophecy of 70 weeks, um, Bradley writes asking, when would we say that it is that the glory of God, which had departed from the temple, returns? Would it be at the presentation or when he's here visiting the temple as, as a, a 12-year-old or then later um, just before his passion. Yeah, so there is the prophecy, the Lord will suddenly come to the temple, right? And 
generally that's connected to the presentation because that's the moment when he first comes to the temple. But the Shekinah cloud does not return to the temple. He is the temple, right? This is the temple built by the false Messiah, Herod. And so the Shekinah cloud doesn't return to either the temple that was built after the exile or to this temple that's built as a monument to Herod himself, you know. Jesus is the new temple, and so it rests upon him, as we see in the baptism. Awesome. Let's end with this question then from Colleen, number of other folks also asking about uh, Balaam. Could you just explain a little bit more what, what happened there? What is that episode of Balaam's prophecy? So Balaam, as Benedict points out, we have actually histor- historical record of Balaam existing as a prophet in Moab. And so when Israel comes out of Egypt, they are just slaughtering all of their enemies. They're, they're unbeatable insofar as they remain faithful to God. And the, Moabite, the Moabites see this. And so they send the prophet Balaam to curse the Israelites. But he's prevented, right? And there's the famous story of his donkey, right? Where the donkey sees the angel with the sword, but he doesn't, right? Etc. And so what ends up happening is that Balaam is prevented from cursing Israel and instead blesses them. And in the midst of that blessing, right, there's a number of oracles that that he recites, um, but he has this prophecy of a star um, that will point to the coming king. Awesome. Well, thank you, doctor, for another uh, excellent presentation and uh, for wrapping up this short, beautiful book that we can be taking to our, our prayer and meditation for the next couple of weeks. Doctor, could you close us out in prayer this evening? name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Please lead us into the fullness of truth and into your grace, that we may live truly free lives as your sons and daughters. Help us to prepare for your coming anew into our lives, that we may find in you the full realization of all of our deepest longings. Together we give you all glory and praise as we say, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.